Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we can see, there is three different passages here that speak to the image of God. And there are three different components to being made in the image of God. And we can see these just in verse 26. The first component is that there is a God to human component to the image of God. That we are made in His image. We are given authority by God. The authority we have is under God. It's not apart from God, but it is submissive to Him. The second component is the human to human component of the image of God. Because we have to acknowledge and reckon with the fact that I'm not the only one that's in the image of God. All humans are in the image of God, whether it's the person in China, the person in the prison cell, the person in your neighborhood, the person in the palace. Every person is made in the image of God, and we have to reckon with that. And the third component is the human to creation, that God created us as stewards over his creation, that he gave us authority, he gave us power over his creation. And so acknowledging that there are these different components creates a lot of questions for us that we're going to be exploring. Another passage that talks about the image of God was Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. And Jordan mentioned um, last week this idea of a parallelism, how you have in Hebrew poetry these two uh, lines that sort of go across and they share common themes in them. Uh, A thought rhyme is what he called them. And I really wanted to sort of draw this out some in this passage. And Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 4, it says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Here we can see an echo of what we see in Genesis chapter 1, that humans are made in the image of God. They're made a little lower than the angels. and says they crown them with glory and majesty. Some versions say glory and honor there. You're crowned with glory and honor. And we are set to rule over the things on the earth. The part that I really want to draw out and that we're going to focus on quite a bit this uh, morning is this verse 5 that says that we are crowned with glory and majesty. Just keep that in mind as we go through the sermon this morning because we're going to come back to it at multiple points. So knowing that we are in the image of God, there's a question that we can ask ourselves that we can find the answer in in the teaching of the image of God. And that question is, what does it mean for humans to have power? What does that mean? What does that look like? What is it supposed to look like? And when you look at what Jordan taught us last week, we can see that what it means for humans to have power is to rule under God's authority and alongside one another. 
this is what it means for humans to have power. It's not apart from God's authority. It's not rebelling against Him that we're supposed to have power under His authority and alongside the other images of God. And recognizing what it means for humans to have power in the light of the image of God, a second question emerges, and that is, what is the human tendency when it comes to power? When humans have power, what is the human tendency? And I can see through the mask, some of you are laughing, because the answer is, you already know. <laughs> you already know what the human tendency is when it comes to power. You know because you know some world history, and you also know because you're a human. And you have power. And you know your tendency with that power. But we're going to look at some, some things in Scripture to see what the human tendency is exactly when it comes to power and possessing power. And we're going to go to Daniel chapter 3 to, to start. Um, many of you probably know this story. It's the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you're familiar with VeggieTales, there's something about a chocolate bunny, I think. So the human tendency when it comes to power is excellently displayed all throughout Daniel. And in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we have this. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Here we have King Nebuchadnezzar has set this golden image that he expects all of his people to worship anytime this music is played. And what we see the king doing, who has power in this position, is he creates this image for all the images of God to worship. Never mind the fact that all of the people that, he is, that are under his authority have more value and more worth than this golden image that he has set up. He wants all of them to worship this image that he has created. And not only that, but this king treats the image of God as disposable. If you don't do what I say, fiery furnace with you. If you don't do what I say, you die. This image that he's created, the authority he sees in himself is greater to him than the value he sees in the humans he's supposed to be ruling over. And this is the same sort of misuse of power that we see all throughout world history, that we see all throughout the scriptures. In Daniel alone, there are two other places. In Daniel 2, this same king threatens to kill people just because they can't interpret his dream. In Daniel 6, a different king, he says, well, if you don't worship me alone for 30 days, you're dead. They exalt their worth and degrade the worth of other people. In Psalm chapter 2, kings and kingdoms, they come together and they're trying to rebel against God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel rightly prophesies what a king is going to be like. The king is going to take and take and take and take. All of this speaks to the human tendency when it comes to possessing power. Humans elevate their own worth. They degrade the worth of others. And they either completely remove God from the picture or they try to elevate some other image to be on equal 
footing with God. This is the human tendency we see in Scripture, and this is the human tendency that we see in ourselves. I see it in myself. I mean, maybe Jordan Dancer is right, and I really am just the worst person in the world, but I see this in myself. I see this in my parenting. I'm pretty sure I did this this morning. Where I have authority over my children, but I don't, I don't make it about God being the ultimate authority. I make it about me being the ultimate authority. I don't make it about this human who has worth from God, but I make it about me who has worth and how they should listen to me and they shouldn't get on my nerves. I abuse the power. We abuse power. The human tendency is to try to separate what power we have from the true authority and make it about us. And as a result, we degrade the value and the worth of others. And the question that comes from this is, what is God going to do about this? What is God going to do about the human tendency when it comes to power? And how does Israel fit into this? Because that's what we're picking up. Jordan said, started, uh, ended last week telling us about this, this picture we get in Genesis 3.15 of this human who's going to really image God well and is going to crush the head of the serpent and have his heel bruised. And all throughout Scripture, you have the people sort of looking for this human who's going to do this right and failing over and over and over again. You've got Noah, and you figure out pretty soon Noah's not the one and neither are his kids. And then you get to Abraham, and he's given this blessing, and he's told that he, he, through his seed, uh, all the world is going to be blessed. But, well, it sure isn't Isaac, and it sure isn't Jacob that does this right. And we arrive at Israel, and at Mount Sinai, in, Matt, in Exodus chapter 19, God creates a covenant with Israel. And this is where Jordan left us off last week, where God has chosen Israel as his covenant people, and they are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It says, now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All the earth is God's anyways. All the peoples are really God's anyways. But he's choosing these people for a special task to be a priest, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They are supposed to be like a go-between, an intercessor, a mediator between God and all the other nations. That's what it means to be a priest. A kingdom of priests to the other nations. God is choosing these people to be His representatives. And this becomes even more clear when we go and we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, which uh, Brother Craig read this morning, and thank you for reading that. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5-8, through 8, it says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? 
Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? We can see here that one of the purposes that Israel is supposed to have is that they are supposed to be the sort of people that when other nations look at them, they say, what a wise and understanding people. Because of the law that God has provided them. That the nations are supposed to see them and they're supposed to serve as like a beacon for the righteousness of God, for the goodness of God, to point these other nations to him, the one who gave them the statutes, the one that gave them the judgments that is more righteous than any other law that was possessed in that day. This was their purpose, to be showing all the other nations how it's done when you live under the authority of God as his images. And they were given the resources to accomplish this. Just in this passage alone, there are resources. It's the law. The law was given to them so they might know how to live, so that they might know how to cultivate their land, so that they might know how to deal with their brothers and sisters and family members and foreigners. The law was given to them so that they could be a wise and understanding people and so that other people would look at them and see just how great their God is. Not only this, but they were given other resources. In Deuteronomy 15.6, it says, For the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised you. And you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. He's telling them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so much that you're going to be so great and so rich that you will not have to borrow from anyone. Other nations will come to you to borrow from you. That's how great you will be when I bless you. He's going to bless them so that other people would come to them. So that they could be great, so they could accomplish this task. And this wasn't just some pipe dream. It actually happened. Initially, in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45 says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. They initially did a pretty good job setting it up. In Joshua, they go into Jericho, they go into the Canaan land, and they take it over. They're blessed with this land flowing with milk and honey. They're blessed by their God. And so between the land and the law and the blessing from God and the fact that God was in their midst, they had everything they needed to represent God. They had everything they needed to be the image of God and to show other nations how it's done. That they're in the image of God too. And this is what it looks like to be in the image of God. And since they had all of this and they had this great purpose, what could possibly go wrong when God gives them so much to succeed in this mission? And, I mean, not to hate on Israel because it's not like I could do any better, but everything goes wrong. I mean, there's only one person in the entire storyline of the Old Testament that's faithful completely. One person. It's God. God is the only one that is truly faithful through the entire history of Israel. Every single person sins. Every single person mars their conscience, mars 
their likeness to God, every single one of them. And I want to take some time to look at two ways, two ways in particular, that they were called to image God and they failed. And I want to look at these two ways because I think they're intimately connected to what it means to be in the image of God. The first one is in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Here it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the air or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Here, in the Ten Commandments, it basically starts out like, I'm your God and you should only worship me. Don't go make idols. Don't go make these images and fall down and worship them. Worship me alone because I'm a jealous God. Because I am the God. Another instance of this commandment is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Do not go and create these images about of these things that are on the earth or in the sky. Don't worship the things that you see. These things are for you. And so in these two different passages, what we see is that they don't need to worship other gods. They don't need to make an idol to worship. They don't need to make and worship images of things in creation. And they don't need to worship things that exist in creation. Don't worship anything but me, God says. And why? Because God is their Savior. Because God is a jealous God. And because creation is for them to rule, not to worship. And God seems pretty pretty serious about idolatry being a problem and being the thing that they shouldn't do. And at the risk of sounding a bit heretical, what's the big deal? I mean, if they just make this image and decide to pay homage to it or something, what's the big deal? I mean, at the very least, why can't we at least why can't they at least make an image of him? I mean, it's for you, God. Why can't I make an image of you? I mean, God seems really concerned about this. He says in Deuteronomy, it said, You God did not present himself in a visible form to keep you from making an image of him. He's really concerned about this. And I think part of the answer, uh, this is definitely not the fullest answer, is that he already has an image of him. 
It's you. It's me. It's the Israelites. They are the image of God. He doesn't need another one. He's already made one. And that doesn't give the whole answer. I think it gives us an idea. But even bigger than that, why not an image of anything? Not even just him, but anything. We can't worship, they can't worship any other thing. They can't pay homage to any other thing. Why is this? Why can't they do this? And when I was studying this, one of the things that occurred to me is that there's something more devastating happening here than I real, realized. That when they commit idolatry, there's something truly devastating happening. And to understand it, we need to think about what it means to be in the image of God. Going back to Psalm 8, that verse 5 that I said was going to be important, it says that you are crowned, you crowned him, you crowned humans with glory and majesty, glory and honor. You crowned humans this way. God, who is full of glory, who is full of majesty, has given some to humans. They're crowned with glory and majesty. And if we go and look at what it says about idolatry, it's in like Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for which does not profit. When they go and they commit idolatry and they worship some other god, they're taking the glory that they got from God, the almighty God, and they're changing it into something else. Something that does not profit. Psalms echoes this in 106 verses 19 and 20. It says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. This is talking about the golden calf incident in Exodus. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They had the glory from God, the creator of the universe, the one that loves more than anyone could love, and they exchanged that glory for the glory of the image of an ox, not even the ox itself. Another psalm speaks to this in verse 130, chapter 135, verses 15 through 18. The idols of the nation are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You're made in His likeness. What happens when you worship an image? You become like it. You are desecrating what it means to be human when you commit idolatry. It corrupts the glory given by God. It makes you become like that image or idol instead of God. You're not just failing to give God the, ten the attention He wants. That's not, the, that's not the sum total of what's happening when you commit idolatry. You're not just, giving, you're not just failing to give Him the attention He wants. You're destroying a part of what it of you. You're destroying a part of what makes you you. That's what happens when humans commit idolatry. And I think this is a little abstract. And I don't know how this next slide is going to appear because I noticed when I got up here, my slides were the color schemes different. Uh, so hopefully this next one's going to be okay. But I have an example that I think. Falls short of doing it justice, but we're going to do our best here, okay? 
This is a picture of my beautiful wife. When we got married, this was her bridal shots. She, I was informed last night this was not actually on our wedding day, but I didn't know that. Uh, but sometime they had these bridal shots taken. One of the things that we need to, before I, before I do this example, I forgot to say something. One of the things that we need to realize about the Israelites when it came to idolatry is that they had these things everywhere, or they had these things where they were visible. They, they put these things in their houses, and they put these things at the gates of their cities, and they put these things in high places and in temples. These things were always visible. And another thing that I think we've, we sort of miss when we think about the Israelites and idolatry is that it wasn't, for most of the time, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm worshiping God with all of my heart, and now I'm going to go commit idolatry. A lot of times it was just, there's generations that are passing that we're not really told about, or we are told about, but you know, in a sentence or two, that where they lead into idolatry over time. It's not something that just usually happened in an instant. Okay? And I want to try to get the idea across of what's happening in terms of the desecration of what it means to be human idolatry with the example of this picture of my wife. Imagine if I was to take this picture and I was to get it framed, okay? And I frame it and I put it on maybe my nightstand or on the wall. And I decide that every day I'm going to look at this picture to remind myself of uh, how awesome my marriage is or how awesome my wife is. And that's what I'm going to do every day. Pretty harmless. Nothing wrong with that. And so every day I do this and I keep on doing it and I keep on doing it. And over time, eventually, maybe something happens and maybe I decide... You know, I think I might just start giving this thing a kiss every time I come home. And I come home and I'm kiss this picture. Okay, maybe a little weird, but nothing, nothing wrong with that. Uh, all right, so time goes on, and I'm doing this, and I'm thinking about it, and then something happens, and I'm a little bit worried and concerned about my marriage. Okay, and so I, for whatever reason, decide, oh, I'm just going to sit, and I'm going to stare at this picture for a while until I feel better about my marriage. And I do this. And then time goes by and something else happens that makes me worried. And I come and look at this picture and I think about how awesome my marriage is because I'm thinking about this picture. And I look at this picture and I look at this picture and I make it the thing that I think about when I think about marriage. I make it the thing that I think about when I think about my wife. And over time, maybe what happens is I end up thinking, hmm, what should I do this weekend? What would Jesse want me to do? And I don't think about what my actual wife wants me to do on the weekend. I think about what this picture wants me to do on the weekend. And I don't think about what my wife would want to be, what I should do to make my wife happy. I think about what the wife in this picture would want me to do to make her happy. And time goes on, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens. And maybe one day, a thief breaks into my house and comes into our room, and I jump up and I say, don't hurt my wife! And I grab the photograph, and I protect it with everything I have. Now, I think I know what you're thinking. Dustin, this is really weird, and that's a bit crazy. And if that's what you're thinking, you're getting the points. Because what the biblical authors want us to understand is that idolatry is ludicrous. It's crazy. It is weird. We're made by the almighty God who loves us, who gave us glory, who crowned us with glory and honor and made us in his likeness. And when humans commit idolatry, they exchange their glory for what does not profit. They give authority that they're supposed to have over that thing. And they say, no, you be my authority, you mute thing. And they no longer are in the likeness of God. They're in the likeness of this thing. 
They desecrate their likeness to God. And and the Israelites do this over and over again. They fail to be the image of God. They profane His name. They forget who made them and where their power came from. And they just give it to something else. The second thing that I want to address in terms of a way to not image God or a way they're supposed to is the way that they rule. The Israelites were given the law. And in the law, there are many different uh, laws, statutes, judgments that are telling them how to rule. And one of the things that they're told is how to rule the land. There are, there are lots of different laws concerning to rule the land. A familiar one that's quoted in the New Testament once is Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. They're given laws about how to rule this land and how to do it wisely and how to make it flourish and how to not treat their beasts like they're not worth anything. Okay? They're given all these laws on how to do this. And we're not going to belabor these. But they're also given laws on how to rule over others, on how to rule over other people. And everything that they're told to do when it comes to ruling over other people, other people who are in the image of God, essentially draws from the character of God. And one of these passages is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 through 19. Here it says, So circumcise your heart, And stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor takes a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. When God is giving them instructions on how to rule over the other people, He wants them to draw from His qualities in the way that He rules people, where He is great and mighty, but He does not show partiality. He executes justice. He shows love. And this is the same sort of way that He wants His people to rule over others. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse the second half of verse 46 says, In respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. They're not supposed to be severe with one another. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, it talks about the strangers, the foreigners. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God wants His people to rule over others in a way that exhibits His characteristics. Like the image of God should. And not only does He give them rule uh, statutes, judgments on how to rule the land or to rule over others, but also He gives the king. You know, it says in Deuteronomy 17, when you come into the land... And uh, you say, we want a king like all the other nations. He's just, it's foretelling that this is going to happen. He gives the king here a list of rules that, that, that they should do, that they should follow to be a good king. We're just going to list out of them. The king is supposed to not be a foreigner, so don't put a foreigner in king as king over you. And don't multiply horses. I had to look this one up. I didn't quite understand. And the three reasons we're given was because... Uh, there's, they're not supposed to uh, increase their splendor. They are for war, and they're not supposed to be going around just you know, des- 
decimating everything. And it also had something to do with relationships with Egypt. Horses apparently came from there. And that goes with the next one. Uh, don't go back to Egypt. The king should not take his people back to Egypt. He shouldn't go back to Egypt. The king should not multiply his wives. We know someone who definitely failed on that one. And then no multiplying of silver and gold for himself. Hey, kings, don't, don't be a king and get rich. That's what it's saying. Study your Bible. The king was supposed to take the law and get their own copy of it. They're supposed to by hand copy the Bible by themselves. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Genesis through Deuteronomy copying by hand? That's crazy. I mean, we have lead pencils and stuff. That'd be way harder back then. They're supposed to study the Bible, and they're never supposed to perceive themselves as above any of their brethren. Yeah, I may be ruling over you, but we're all made in the image of God. God wants his people and his kings to rule like he rules and to not increase their own worth or value. <laughs> but how does this go? How does Israel rule others? Well, let's just take a quick walk through the prophets here, okay? It, they are not supposed to take, they, are, they choose to not take counsel from God. And they choose to go to Egypt to be strong. They are not supposed to trust in oppression, but they do. And they trust in horses and they trap men. They live in excess with no care for the needy. They rule by their own power and they superficially help others. They pretend, the kings, they, the rulers, they pretend everyone is okay when they're really not. And they refuse to turn from God. And the kings, they built themselves up. They didn't treat people well. They oppressed them. They just ignored people's needs. The short story is they failed. I mean, they were given this list, this way to rule others, and the king was given a way to rule people, but they just completely abandoned it. And they decided to rule by their own authority, by their own might, by the might of Egypt. And they failed. And we would, know, do, would do no difference. The story of Israel just brings us back to the same issue that we see in the garden, that there is the need for the true image of God. We need this snake crusher to come, the one that's going to defeat the beast. We need this one to come. And Daniel, when he's under Babylonian captivity, because they've been exiled from God, they've been exiled from their land, the people of Babylon have come and have ruled over them because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their failure to rule the way they're supposed to. Daniel is in a land where there's no hope in sight. And in Daniel chapter 7, we get this really interesting picture. There's these four beasts that come out of the water. Okay, One after the other, these four beasts come out of the water. And then this fourth beast, it meets the Ancient of Days after it gets seated. And this fourth beast is slain. And then there are the other three beasts. They just have their dominion removed from them. And after Daniel sees this vision of these beasts sort of rising up and being defeated by the Ancient of Days, we have Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Notice the Psalm 8 language here. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and was given dominion. Notice the Psalm 8 language here. Glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men 
of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel, in a land where there seems to be no hope, who's been exiled from God and has this other kingdom ruling over them, has a vision that gives a glimpse of hope to him. That one day there will be some human who comes and does it right. That the beasts will be defeated. These kingdoms that rule over them will be defeated. And dominion and glory and a kingdom will be given to this human to reign forever. And this is where Jordan Winslow is going to pick up next week. With this human who comes to crush the snake. This human who comes to be the image of God. But for now, I want to close by making sure that we don't just think this is all about Israel and their failures. Because you are the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And there's a point about idolatry here that we've, been, we've spent some time on that I really want to draw out as we close. You know, the thing about idolatry is that the things that were made into idols were not intrinsically evil. You know, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with a golden calf. There's nothing wrong with it. And there's nothing wrong with the sun or the moon, but they could make these things idols. And these things were often created by humans. Idols were. So don't think that the only thing can be an idol is something we didn't create, but even the things that we create can be idols. And they exchanged their power. They're supposed to have power over this thing, but they end up giving the power over them to this thing. And an excellent example of how we fail with this, not sure how these images are going to appear, might be pretty rough, is with money. I mean, money is an excellent example of the sort of thing that we allow to have power over us. We think we possess money when it really possesses us. We think we have the power over it when we really have just let it control us. And we treat it as our idol when we exchange our glory. And I think one of the things that we should reflect on today and through the rest of the week is, how did I do last year? How did I do last year when it comes to giving my, exchanging my glory, when it comes to serving other things, when it comes to letting other things control me and giving other things, placing other things where God should be in my life? Maybe it was your education, your pursuit of knowledge. Maybe it was the election. I mean, anyone with a social media page can go and see how much people have totally compromised themselves when it comes to politics and political agendas and presidential candidates. It doesn't take very long to see how people are idolizing these things and have allowed to control the way they think. It could be America. I mean, I love America. But we could allow it to become an idol in our life. It could be our family. I love our family, but it's not God. It could be our health. It could be our job. There are all sorts of things that are not necessarily intrinsically evil that we can elevate to a place that they do not belong. Where we are supposed to utilize these things to rule over them, but instead we let rule over us. So I'm encouraging you now 
when you leave this place to think about the past year. Who did you represent in 2020? Did you represent one of these things or did you represent Jesus? Who did you allow to dictate what you say and do? Was it one of these things or was it Jesus? We want to help you place Jesus where he belongs as king of your life. And if you want that and you want the help to do that, we would love to pray for you. We would love to visit with you. We would love to help you. If you will come, have a seat on the front pew as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.